And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, of course. As we get today underway, it's the day before the big inflation day. Of course, that's uh, going to be tomorrow. Everybody's going to be looking at that CPI report, trying to figure out, well, what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to hike rates, not hike rates? You know, this is the big question for stocks. Stocks a little bit in limbo over the last, you know, couple of days, really. Yesterday, markets uh, about flat for the day. We did end up in a little bit of positive territory, but pretty choppy trading most of the day. Uh, This morning, futures up a little bit, not a lot. Again, everybody's just kind of waiting to see what the Fed's going to say. Likely, um, we're going to see about somewhere on a low three handle. In other words, like 3.1, 3.2, 3.3% annual inflation. And that's going to suggest that headline inflation continues to fall. But unfortunately, what everybody's really going to be focusing on is that core inflation, which remains sticky, that core inflation that is what the Fed kind of looks at. And there's so many different measures of inflation, right? We've got PCE, we've got CPI, both of those coming out this week. But the core inflation um, really is not coming down a lot. And that's going to be the one thing that everybody's focusing on because that's going to drive the uh, decision by the Federal Reserve whether or not to hike rates again uh, in, uh, later this month, which is pretty much 100% guarantee right now. They will hike rates at the end of this month. But what about after that, right? Uh, The Fed's talking about maybe two more rate hikes here. But again, if inflation starts to show signs of picking back up, uh, as an example, that could mean more rate hikes. And and again, the market's certainly not prepared for that really to to any great degree because, you know, as we've been talking about here recently, the market continues to – you know, move higher here and has been moving higher now for the really the last several months. Um, You know, we went through a little bit chop earlier this year, just on the whole back of the regional bank crisis that was quickly resolved. And we've been in a fairly defined uptrend here, fairly narrow, but again, kind of grinding higher day after day. And that's that's okay, right? That's that sentiment. We've had a lot of bullish sentiment return back to the markets here, and that's getting, you know, people a lot more excited as prices rise. And, uh, and again, we're also going to start off by, on Thursday and Friday of this week with major corporate earnings. We're going to start seeing the, the, the big banks uh, this, uh, this the end of this week, next week, and then we'll get into the regionals, and then we'll get into technology stocks uh, a couple weeks after that. So, you know, all those, you know, everybody's very excited that earnings are recovering. Estimates are starting to move up again. Uh, analysts are getting a lot more excited on stocks. This is this is a very interesting situation that we that we are currently in because again, there's so many indicators out there and and really so many people fearful that we're just on the cusp of a recession. But the market certainly doesn't suggest that you know at this point, and that's the confusing part of all this. How is the market doing this when? <laughs> You know, there's so much concern about recession, slowing economy, higher rates, those type of things. It certainly doesn't seem to make sense, but it really does. If we go back and, and again, we kind of, you know, go back in time and, and, we, and we'll talk a little bit more this morning about contrarian investing as well. But there was so much negative sentiment back in October of last year in particular 
that it was it was obvious that you were going to eventually get this kind of rotation back into equities. Now we're starting to get very optimistic, right? So that whole fear of missing out on the bottom is now becoming a fear of missing out on the rally. And we're just jumping from, you know, this FOMO on one side to the FOMO on the other. And that's just what we've done to markets over the last couple of years in particular because of all this liquidity and stimulus. And the fact that we've trained investors now that no matter what happens, the Fed is going to step in and take care of it. Right. And it's kind of like an overprotective parent. Right? <laughs> the Federal Reserve has now become the helicopter parent for the markets. No matter what happens, the parent's going to step in, make sure everything's taken care of instead of letting markets operate on their own and work off valuations and, and get kind of the fundamentals back in charge of, of the markets. And that's been a long time since we've been that way where fundamentals have actually driven the markets. Okay, but here's a, a couple of things uh, that we want to talk about today. In particular, the NFIB report will be out this morning talking about small businesses. We'll, we'll get those details uh, today and we'll get into those a little bit tomorrow because they'll tell us a lot about what small businesses are doing. But also we'll talk a little bit about stock risk today as well. But importantly, here's what you need to know before the bell. Markets yesterday, as I said, are just sitting right on top of this 20-day moving average, and we continue just to kind of hold that support. So that's, that's good news here. Uh, again, markets aren't doing anything wrong whatsoever. We just kind of continue to drift up this 20-day moving average. So again, there's no reason to be overly bearish right now. Uh, we're still on a sell signal from a pretty elevated level, suggesting that prices may be capped here a little bit in the near term. But uh, again, you know, we're, we're defining this kind of rally here. One thing that we've talked about before, are these bullish stampedes where you get just kind of a consistent price rise over a period of time. And we've had a bullish stampede now for quite some time. And these stampedes typically last 15 to, you know, 15 uh, trading sessions on average. We're well past that. Um, so we're due for a 3 to 5% correction. I know we've said this before, but again, these things, when you have a lot of bullish momentum in the market, a lot of this FOMO chase, that can take a lot longer to, you know, for these corrections to happen. Um, but it doesn't mean they won't happen. So again, a 3 to 5% correction somewhere along the way will certainly give us a better opportunity to put some capital at work. Uh, in the markets, because again, the trend is clearly higher. As we were saying before, you know, go back to last October, markets were extremely negative. You know, uh, bearish sentiment was extremely high. Now it's just the opposite. Bearish sentiment's dropping very sharply. Bullish sentiment's getting very elevated. And now you've got analyst after analyst coming out now, posting up new price targets for the year, 4,700, 4,800, all-time highs for the market. You know, this is, this is the part of this process, and again, the differential between a bear market and a correction is how fast that you get back to all-time highs. And so, yes, we had a negative return last year, um, but if we get back to new highs this year, which is what a lot of analysts are expecting, that's a correction. Um, bear markets typically take several years to get back to new highs. So the difference between a bear market and a correction is not only the depth of the decline, but it's also how quickly you resolve that decline back into new highs. And, and we're on pace right now. Um, if this market continues uh, in this kind of current trajectory that we have now, we're gonna be at new all-time highs by the end of this year, early next year. Uh, clearly an indicator that last year was just a correction 
within an ongoing uptrend of the market. So again, that bullish dynamic of the market has not changed, um, but we're now flipping rapidly back and forth between very bearish concerns and very bullish outlooks, and we're now back on the very bullish outlook side of the markets. Again, as I said though, a little bit overbought right now, still well deviated from long-term moving averages. That still needs to correct here at some point. But again, these kind of bullish uh, stampedes, as I said, can last uh, a bit longer than you would expect. So uh, again, be careful getting overly cautious right now. Uh, we're clearly in a bullish trend, want to participate with that. Um, but again, this still tends to be, and, and still is in all regards, a fairly narrow rally. If we take a look at really what's driving the market, 60 to 65% of the return this year has been driven by those top seven stocks. Uh, the rest of the, uh, of the market still trying to, to make up some of those. And we are starting to see this rally broaden out a little bit, but not there quite yet. So again, just kind of keep a watch here. Earnings season may give us that bit of a correction that we're looking for. We'll see. But again, use opportun opportunities of price declines to add exposure to portfolios rather than being overly defensive and bearish at this point because, again, the market's simply not in that mode. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Okay, when we come back from the break, I want to get into stock risk. We've also got to talk about consumer credit card debt and a lot of other things. That's all coming up on the show this morning right here at realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence and prepare for the second half of 2023 with the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review. Saturday, July 22nd with Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Chief Investment Strategist Lance Roberts. Get our report card for the market so far and what you need to know to invest profitably for the rest of the year. Register now for the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review, Saturday, July 22nd, with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, of course. Um, so credit card debt, you know, talking about inflation and talking about what's happening kind of in the world around us. And, and again, you know, yes, headline inflation is falling very sharply now. And again, uh, tomorrow when we get the CPI report, it'll probably show a handle somewhere around low threes. And, you know, this is going to be that clear and directed trend of inflation back towards the 2% target, which is what the Fed has been talking about. That should, in theory, begin to pull the Fed off hiking rates. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case right now because sticky inflation continues to remain, well, sticky, that core inflation. And there's the still strong labor market, which even though we had a, a weaker employment number on Friday than had it been expected, and this was the first miss of employment numbers over the last 14 months, it was still over 200,000 people. So again, we're still putting a lot of people to work. Labor market remains tight. That keeps wage pressure elevated. And the one thing that the Fed is concerned about is what's called a wage price spiral, 
which is that inflation that becomes very difficult to break. So, yes, headline, is, headline inflation is falling um, because year-over-year year comparisons are becoming much easier now. But so we'll see what the Fed has to has to say about this, right? Because again, their their real concern is a still strong economy, still strong labor market that would potentially feed back into the economy, creating more inflation, a resurgence of that inflation. That's their big concern. But again, you take a look at the consumer; they're hanging in there. Credit card debt um, continues to to go up. We now have the highest payment on credit cards that we've had in decades. There's been a very, very sharp increase in the average credit card rate that's up over 22% now. And that's because the Fed's been hiking rates. Again, we've talked about this before. When the Fed hikes rates, a lot of people kind of yawn and go, yeah, so what? They're hiking rates. It matters. Yeah, the Fed rate hikes don't affect 30-year mortgages. The Fed rate hikes don't affect, you know, long-term debt. Fed rate hikes don't affect those things. The Fed only controls that short end of the curve. The economy and inflation drive the long end. But on the short end, the Fed affects those things that are short-term in nature. Car loans, auto loans, um, credit card debt. That's where the Fed rate hikes take almost an immediate impact. And again, when you take a look at credit card rates, they've had a very, very sharp increase. And that's okay initially, right? Right now, consumers are able to make those credit card payments. They had excess savings from all that money that we gave them back in 2022. So they had more money than they should have normally. And so they've been able, they were, they paid down credit card debt, which has given them room to run credit card debt back up. But they had ongoing benefits, right? We had, you know, child tax credits. We had a whole variety of other incentives. They weren't making student loan payments. They weren't making rent payments because of the moratoriums. So they had a lot of extra cash on hand to make these payments. But that, those are all ending now. And these credit card payments are continuing to go up. They're becoming a bigger and bigger part of the discretionary income of individuals. So when they get paid, after they pay taxes, they've got this bigger and bigger credit card bill they're going to have to pay. So the question becomes, at what point does the consumer begin to buckle down and say, I just can't spend as much? And we're starting to see some of the early effects of that. We're starting to see areas of the, of the economy begin to take some hits from slower consumer spending. But so far, the consumer's been pretty resilient. You know, there's an old saying in the markets, never count the consumer out, because the one thing about consumers is, is they're very creative about coming up with money. And we've seen this time and time again, you know, when you would expect the economy to come screeching to a halt because of one thing or another, the consumer tends to hang in there. And that's the way this has been over the last couple of years. You know, last year we had just... An, you know, every headline every week was a recession's coming. We're going to have a recession. And as we talked about last year, is that it was going to be very difficult to have a recession because if we had a recession, it would have been the most forecasted recession ever in history. And because of that, 
it makes it very difficult for the recession to occur. If everybody's expecting it, they go, okay, yeah, got it. Recession's coming. Got it. And then they kind of make some adjustments and they go on from there. But then that keeps the recession from occurring. The good news, if you're in the recession camp, is that now there's very few people expecting a recession. (laughs) So if we have a recession now, it won't be the most forecasted recession in history because now everybody's kind of going to the other side of the camp. And so most likely, if we're going to have a recession, it'll be in 2024. That will be a function, ultimately, of these increased rate hikes, of these impacts that we have going on in the economy. And we'll start to see unemployment begin to rise. We'll start to see businesses take on more defensive postures. But that will be a function of slower consumer spending. And that's the one thing that we're watching for very carefully here is a contraction in that spending. Once the spending begins to decline, orders begin to slow, then companies take on a more defensive posture. They stop hiring. They start laying off workers. Then they begin to terminate positions. But that takes us a little time to get there. Um, As we've talked about before, companies are always slow to hire, slow to fire. They're, they're typically slow. They want to see the economy coming back into to growth mode before they begin really uh, you know, staffing up. Because, look, employees are expensive. Training them, you know, getting them all set up in the office, et cetera, it's costly. So I don't want to spend all that money if I'm just getting a short-term blip in activity for you know, one reason or another. I want to make sure that that is a sustainable growth trend in demand, and then I'll start hiring workers. Same thing goes when when demand begins to slow down. Maybe this is just, you know, a seasonal thing. Maybe it's just the summer, right? Consumers are slowing down the summer a little bit. It's hot outside. People aren't traveling as much, you know, whatever. Come up, come up with your excuse. If the slower demand continues to slow into the fall, maybe this is something else. Gets into the winter when we have our big holiday shopping seasons and demand is still falling. Okay, this is there's something else going on here. I'm starting to see you know a much slower environment, so I'm gonna start you know reducing my staff. But they're very slow in doing that because again, for companies to hire and train somebody, it's a very expensive proposition. So I don't want to spend all this money and time and effort training somebody to do a job, and they're good at it. And then I fire them because I may not get them back. And then if I do have to, if I fire them because I'm trying to protect profit margins, then when this slump is over, and it will be eventually, I know that as a, as a business owner, that'll eventually be the case. I've got to go try to hire somebody to fill that position again. I've got to go back through the whole process. So because of that, companies tend to hoard labor as much as possible. They'll get rid of workers that are very easy and and low cost to replace, right? So as an example, I have a live receptionist, answers the phone, takes care of customers. I can replace that with one of those automated dialing systems. And so that's kind of the first, and you know, that's kind of my first target. And that's why there's so many companies now that you call and, and you don't get a live person. You get this 
press one for English, press two for Spanish. And once you get through that, you got through, you know, 50 other menus to try to figure out who to actually talk to about whatever problem you're having. But the reason that that has become so prevalent is because that's a very cheap way to reduce labor cost in the business. It'll do the job. It's not great. It's not that, you know, I'd much rather talk to a person, you know, have somebody talk to me, let me explain my problem, my situation, whatever it is, and they, oh, yeah, no problem. Let me get you to the right person. That's awesome. But that's expensive. I got to pay somebody to do that. And it's not just the salary I have to pay them, right? Now I've got to also give them benefits and health care costs and all that, and answering machine doesn't need any of that, and they don't take time off, right? They're there 24-7. And that's why companies are opting for more and more of these options where technology replaces labor to some degree. Or a person, if they're trained, well, is doing the job of two or three people previously because of technology, innovation, those type of things. And that's why companies are now outsourcing so much labor to other things that reduce internal labor. Oh, if I can outsource this to a, you know, a website that will take my orders and do my drop shipping for me, whatever, I don't have to do that here. That's less people I have to employ. Improves my profit margins. So again, you know, we'll see what happens, but as the economy slows, right? We'll see if this unemployment rate begins to tick up because of this labor hoarding effect that we have going on with businesses right now. And again, if we do have this next recession, the people that we terminate in the next go round likely won't come back after. They'll be replaced by technology, artificial intelligence, etc. It'll be interesting to watch. Anyway, come back. Let's talk about stock risk. Does it actually decline over time? It's one of the great myths of the market. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so i wanted to spend a few minutes talking about stock risk there's a common idea out there that the longer that you hold something in the stock market, the less risk you have in owning it. And there's a premise to that from the standpoint of whether it's a gain or a loss, right? So if I hold something, if I buy a stock and, it, and it's positive for a year, let's say it goes up 20% a year, right? Whatever. Well, for me to lose money on it, I've got to lose that 20% plus more, Right. And that's certainly possible. But let's say it goes up 20% again the next year. So now I'm up 40% in it. So now I've got to lose 40%. So, you know, the, the point is, is that when you talk about stock risk, it's the way people are talking about this is how much do you have to lose before you actually lose money on the position? And so, yeah, the, the more gain you've got in it, the more buffer you've got between, you know, being positive and, and 
losing money. But the reduction of capital is still risk, no matter how it comes along. You know, there was a, a point, and, and we've talked about this before. Uh, Blas Pascal, who was a famous mathematician, he argued that if God exists, belief would lead to infinite joy in heaven. If you don't believe in God, it would lead to infinite damnation. So there's your, there's your reward and risk for belief. Pascal's view on this was that if God doesn't exist, belief would have a finite cost. If, if you don't believe God exists, it's okay. If you believe, though, right, that's his point, and he happens to exist, <laughs> the, the risk and reward is much more in your favor for believing in God even if he doesn't exist. And that was his point. You know, and he said that if God doesn't exist, belief would have a finite cost, and disbelief would only have, at best, a finite benefit. Pascal concluded that given we can never prove whether or not God exists, the function of faith, it's probably wiser to assume he exists because infinite damnation is much worse than the finite cost. In other words, it doesn't cost you much to believe, right? But if he happens to exist and you disbelieve, the cost is overwhelming. And that's important because this kind of goes right back to the stock market and how these things are taught to us about how we invest. And when it comes to investing in particular, uh, that, you know, there's this comment that gets thrown around the media quite a bit which is that the risk of buying and holding an index, just being a passive investor, is only in the short term because the longer you hold it, the less risk you have. Again, this idea between gain and loss. But there's more to it than that. One of the greatest cons that was ever perpetuated on the stock market was that you can't beat the index over a long period. And it's true. A lot of mutual funds, every year, from one year to the next, mutual fund managers, portfolio managers, etc., will underperform an index one year or the next, right? And that's because of a whole variety of things, right? If I'm a large-cap manager and I manage a large-cap index, or large, or I should say a large-cap index, I, I manage a large-cap portfolio, right, of stocks, it happens to be a year where small and mid-cap are outperforming, I'm going to underperform. <clears throat> or if you have a year where seven stocks are driving the entire market and you own other stocks, you're going to underperform, right? So there are things that can happen from one year to the next where you will underperform managing a portfolio. But the idea that you should never invest, that you should just buy an index and never invest with an active manager because active managers always underperform is a huge misnomer. That is not the case at all. There is a ton of mutual funds that have outperformed the index over time. I have a chart here, just a, a quick handful 
I just ran out into the market and I just grabbed five mutual funds that have really long-term track records. And going back over history, um, these funds have vastly outperformed the index over time. The index, the S&P index, is, is basically the worst performing of these mutual funds. Now, did these mutual funds outperform the index every year? No, they did not. There were years where they underperformed the S&P. But overall, they crushed the S&P over a long holding period. And so this whole idea is, that, well, you just you know don't invest with an active manager because they underperformed last year. Yeah, probably. A lot of mutual funds, portfolio managers, are going to underperform the S&P index this year because you have seven stocks driving the market and you don't have your entire portfolio in seven stocks, nor do you want to. That's just the nature of, of managing money and managing risk. That's what happens in a year like this. But the point about stock risk is easy to measure. The idea that stock risk declines over time is easy to measure, whether or not that is the case. And, and the way you think about this is that if I have a risk of driving an automobile, which I do, then I buy insurance. The longer... You know, I, I'm, I'm concerned that I might die at some point, and I want to make sure my family is protected in the event of my untimely death. My risk is associated accordingly, right? But I buy that insurance because if I happen to die, I want to make sure my family's taken care of. In the stock market, it's the same way. I can go out and buy options to hedge my risk of loss in the market. And so I can go look at call options as an example. I'm sorry, put options, because I'm going to buy a put to hedge my downside risk. And so I can look at what it costs me to buy insurance over time. And the more time I want to buy to hedge my risk, the option gets more and more expensive the more time I want. Now, if the, if the market was right and they said that my stock risk declines over time, then the cost of my put option would get cheaper, not more expensive. The reason it's more expensive is that the longer I go out, the higher the probability there's going to be some catastrophic event that occurs in the market. You have a 20% drawdown, 30% drawdown, whatever. So the more time I want to buy to hedge my portfolio against that risk, the more it's going to cost me. That tells you right there that risk does not decline over time. It actually increases over time because of the fact that I'm buying the time that there's potentially a crash in there somewhere. And this is something that, and, and again, you know, when we go back and, well, you know, what could that be? Well, you know, the Fed's been hiking interest rates now at one of the most aggressive paces since the 1970s. And every time the Fed has, has hiked rates this aggressively, we've had a recession, bear market, et cetera. So the risk of a correction is certainly still there. Even though we had a correction last year, right? Markets are recovering this year. We're getting very exuberant. But 
if we have a recession, earnings are going to decline. These ex these rather lofty expectations we have for earnings right now are going to decline. And that means you're going to have another down leg in the market if that occurs. I'm not saying it is going to occur. I'm just saying if. Okay. So hedging my risk is going to get more expensive the more time I want to buy for that. If I think the recession's in 2024 or 2025 or 2026, my cost of insurance is going to go up. The more time I want to buy, the more it's going to cost me. I'm not saying it's not worth the cost. But what options tell you is that risk doesn't decline over time. It actually increases. The longer your holding period, the more risk you take of getting caught up into a correction or a bear market or something worse. And so this is kind of the point that we want to think about when we're talking about the long game, right? The first thing is, is to this whole narrative of just buy an index because you can't beat the market. That's true. If you buy an index, you will perform with the market. There's a very big difference between any portfolio manager and an index. The index contains no cash. It has no life expectancy requirements, but you do. Yes, I can hold an index for 100 years, but you're not going to be around 100 years. The, you know, for you, you've got from now until you die. And so you better not be in a, in a period of the market like 20, uh, you know, like 2000 to 2017, where you spend 17 years going nowhere. Or the 1960s and 70s, where you spend two decades going nowhere. After inflation, you lose money. Your time rising means everything. Indexes don't have to compensate for distributions. They have a substitution ability. You don't. There's a massive difference between an index and your portfolio. So you have to manage your portfolio based on what you need it to do and stop worrying about the index as much. But you can't beat the index. You need time to do it. And you're not going to do it every year. But if you have a good strategy and a discipline, it will work over time. That article's on the website this morning with the rules about how to beat that index as well. It's on there on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So this morning, uh, futures pointing up a little bit this morning. Um, again, yesterday, bouncing right off the 20-day moving average once again, uh, continuing to kind of hold that support line right now. Clearly nothing bearish or concerning about the markets right now. Markets just kind of continuing a positive trend. Um, one thing that is coming up on the 24th of the month is a rebalancing of the NASDAQ. And those top seven stocks in the NASDAQ are going to get cut by about 7% in total. Um, so we saw a little bit of that selling pressure yesterday, but that's more kind of active managers getting ahead of it. Uh, index funds will rebalance on the 24th, right? Because they have to track the, in I mean, uh, you know, as an index fund, my whole thing is to track the index specifically. So I can't rebalance my index lower out of those top seven stocks 
prior to the rebalancing. Otherwise, I won't track the index. Right. So on the 24th, there'll be a rebalancing of all the index funds. But we saw yesterday in particular, um, Microsoft, Apple, other kind of these big tech stocks underperforming a bit. Um, and we saw a bit of rotation to other areas of the market. Energy was up. Utilities were up, et cetera. Um, so some money managers getting kind of ahead of that rotation uh, of that. Re sorry, of that rebalancing. On the 24th, that's where the rebalancing will take place. That'll probably put some pressure, you know, temporarily for the market for the day or, you know, the, a day or two. Um, but this is well known. So it's not, it's not, this isn't that event that's going to cause a big correction in the markets. Uh, everybody's aware of it. So, you know, uh, as, as the rebalancing occurs, it'll get absorbed by the market. So, again, it's not, it's not anything to worry about. But we could see a little bit of selling pressure again uh, in some of these big tech stocks ahead, you know, as active managers kind of get ahead of that rebalancing just in case. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll kind of probably see, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a bifurcation in the market from not, not necessarily today. You know, you had some selling pressure yesterday, so people are going to buy the dip today. But over the next week or so, you could kind of see the market grind here a little bit. But again, you know, so far right now, the market continues to hold that 20-day moving average. Certainly no sign of stress. And, and really, we have no sign of stress anywhere in the markets. Uh, you know, credit spreads remain exceptionally low. There's no real sign of stress in the credit market to any great degree. Housing market continues to hold in there well. Um, starting to see prices come down a little bit. Um, auto prices are coming down a bit, but nothing's just falling off the cliff, right? So, you know, higher higher rates are having an impact, but it's being well absorbed by the economy and consumers, as we talked about before. And again, as we kind of get into the latter part of this year, we'll see how well the consumer continues to do amidst an environment of higher rates. But so far, it is they've been they've held up exceptionally well, and that's because of all this liquidity in there. But but again, you know this, uh, you know if students are required to start making repayments on their student loans, that's going to certainly detract from consumer spending. But again, the administration is now trying to figure out a workaround to keep them from paying their debt. So, you know, again, as always the case, we're trying to buy votes here, which is fine, and we're in the, we're starting to get heavily into the next election season coming up quickly. So, you know, all these things are going to continue to kind of distort markets to some degree. So, again, just, you know, whatever you think is on the horizon, if you know about it, the markets are going to absorb it. Because if you know about it, they know about it. And if everybody knows about something, the market's going, okay, I got it. I understand it. I know what the risk is. I can price that in. And... Retail investors are piling back into the markets, hand over fist right now. Call options, uh, you know, retail call option buying is is starting to surge pretty quickly, and it's, and and it's very much that kind of repeat of what we saw um, back in 2020. But this time is different from the standpoint that in 2020, investors were piling into stocks. Because of all the liquidity. You had the Federal Reserve doing $120 billion a month in QE. You had $5 trillion of money sent to people. Moratoriums, blah, blah, blah. 
all those are gone now. The Fed is doing quantitative tightening. Interest rates are substantially higher. Credit is becoming more restrictive. So the environment is certainly different, even though investors are behaving the same as they did back in 2020 in terms of exuberance and the FOMO and the call option buying and these type of things. The environment is very different than what it was back in 2020. So I think you have to at least acknowledge that difference. It doesn't mean that the markets can't remain illogical longer than you can remain solvent. They can. And they have. And if you've been trying to short the market this year, it's been a terrible experience. But that is what markets can do from time to time. But eventually, the fundamentals will matter. But it won't, they won't matter on what you think they're going to matter on. This is, the, you know, this is the way the markets work. Again, if the markets can see something and quantify it, they can price it into the market. It's always that unexpected exogenous event that shows up, seemingly out of nowhere, that nobody's anticipating, that roils the market. And I have no idea what that, what that could be. Could be a geopolitical event, could be a financial event, could be a credit event, could be a whole variety of things. You know, as example, everybody's talking about this debt problem that's coming up with refinancing of debt with all these small companies. Market knows about it already. That's not going to be the issue. It's a problem, right? Clearly a problem. But the credit markets are already absorbing that. And so as we get closer to the point in time where this refinancing has to happen, the markets will already be well aware of who's going to make it and who's not. The market will have already adjusted for it. So you see, this is the problem about when the market knows something. It, it already starts to work that process. This group of companies aren't going to make it. This group of companies are going to default. These companies are going to be just fine, and money's going to flow accordingly. So when the event occurs and there's a surge in bankruptcies or whatever of these small companies, it'll already be priced into the market. And so that's why it has to be something that the markets aren't thinking about. It's something you aren't thinking about, something I'm not thinking about. It's going to be something that shows up one morning, and I'm, I'm here talking to you, and I go, well, this happened overnight, and... Here's the problem with it. And the markets weren't even aware of it. See, that's what gets the market. And, and, and right now, there doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon that will do that. But, they're not, but that's the way it always seems. Right? And so if your brain's running right now trying to think of what it is, Russia's going to drop nuclear bombs in Ukraine. market already knows that. That's been in headlines now for the last six months. Right. So, you know, the problem is, is that we can't predict these things. But when it shows up, it'll impact the market and we'll have to make adjustments accordingly. But that's why we want to measure risk over time and manage that risk to the best of our ability. And and look, right now, it, it's, it's like, why don't I just have all my money in Apple? Right. And whatever. People are doing that. I'm, you know, there's a lot of people that have just shoved all their money into the top seven stocks right now. And they're doing fine at the moment. But that will change. 
because that's that's clear that is just simply unsustainable and the prices and valuations of those companies already exceed the price estimates that are justifiable by those earnings so eventually there will be a correction the only question is when and it's like well it hasn't happened before well it just happened last year because remember last year everybody thought fang stocks were dead they were down 50 60 percent But that's the way markets work over time. And again, these stocks can run a lot longer and a lot further than you think before they have a next correction. And so that's that's the problem. See, this is the, the risk management side of the portfolio. And it's just and it's just a tough environment that we're in if you're trying to be rational. You know, if you're not being rational and you don't care about what you do, then just chase the market because you're going to win right now because the markets are going up. And every small dip, you have a two or three day correction in this market, that's a buyable dip. And people are buying it. And it's challenging. It's just the way it is. And this is why, though, you know, when we talk about, you know, portfolio management, the markets, the economy, the environment, there's certainly many, many things to be concerned about. Look, there's a laundry list of them. But right now, nobody cares. Will they care eventually? Sure, absolutely. They just don't care today. Because right now, they're having too much fun. <laughs> but it will matter eventually. So this is why you know, we talk all about risk management. We talk a lot about maintaining you know, discipline, maintaining focus. It's times like these that the market wants you to break that discipline and focus. But that's when you get in trouble. So just be careful. All right, wraps up the show for the day. We'll be back tomorrow for Wednesday's edition. Danny Ratliff will join me, I think, uh, tomorrow. We'll see. Sometimes he's here, sometimes he's not. You never know. But we'll have stuff to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll have the NFIB report. We'll also be looking at the CPI inflation numbers in the morning because that'll be coming out right after the show ends tomorrow. So we'll have some probably some early guesstimates on what those numbers are going to look like in the morning. So we'll get through all that data with you tomorrow. Be sure to go by the website. Get the latest article on stock risk. Does it decline over time? It's on the website now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.